Hey, welcome to Vision Sunday. Um, actually, I realize that uh, we, have, we haven't done this in a couple years. And what I mean by that is for 10 years, we specifically on Vision Sunday, this is the Sunday of every year, the last Sunday of January, focused in on and talked about our mission, our vision, why we exist, and spent some time praying about it. In the last couple years, for whatever reason, we kind of skipped it and and entered into different sermon series. But this Sunday, uh, we come back to what we've done. And I'm really excited um, for it as well. Um, let me give you an imagery. And I don't know why, but I want you to participate. I want us to be do, doing this active thing together this morning. Do this with me. Ready? Contracting. Contracting. <laughs> Expanding. Contracting. Expanding. Matt, are you getting this on video? Like, okay. Here, ready? Um, gathering. Scattering. Gathering. Scattering. Thank you for playing along this morning. Contracting and expanding. Contracting and expanding. You're going to see this imagery throughout this week. Um, gathering and scattering. Gathering and scattering. Contracting and expanding. Gathering and, expa- uh, and expanding. Being radically called in. To be radically called out. Be radically called in. To be radically called out. What I just described is not just the early church, but your Christian life. A disciple of Jesus Christ is somebody, the Bible says, from Genesis to Revelation. Somebody who is radically called in. A disciple is someone who is radically called in. That is God, creator God, that we sang about this morning. Thank you. Carlton and worship team for reminding us. A gigantic, enormous creator, God, calls you and I in, radically in, to intimacy, to know him. To know him intimately, not from afar, but to know him intimately. He calls in to be saved, to be redeemed, to be healed. Anybody saved? Anybody redeemed? Anybody healed this morning? God calls us to radically come in, but at the same time, and they go together every time. He also says then radically go out. I call you radically in so that I can radically call you out. And they go together every time. A disciple of Jesus Christ, come on in. Come on in. There's seats up in the front. There's seats up in the back. See, if you come late, that's what I do to you, okay? (laughs) And everybody turns around. And by the way, they're all visitors today, of course, and they're never going to come back again. (laughs) Abraham. Abraham. He's radically called in. Abraham, come in. I want to bless you. I want to bless your entire family. Look at the stars. Can you count them? That's what your inheritance is going to be. But does he stay there? God says, Abraham, now I call you radically what? I call you radically out. You're going to be a blessing to all the nations. Moses, Moses, don't stand afar. Come in. Take off your shoes because this is holy ground. But come in, come in, come closer. Now you've met me. Now go out and say to Pharaoh, let my people go. Isaiah, come in. Don't stay afar. Come in. Let me touch your lips. Let me cleanse you. And right away, He says, now who will go for me? Radically in, radically out. Radically in, radically out. Gathered, scattered, contracting, expanding. That is the life of a disciple. God never radically calls you in. I radically call you out. 
In other words, God never saves you just from something, but he always saves you for, radically in, radically out. Do you know why someone who is radically called in, saved, redeemed, healed, is able to live their lives radically out, mission for others? The gospel comes and says, without Christ and your everyday having to, you know, find your own salvation, be your own savior. All of us, that nagging sense of inadequacy, nagging sense of worthlessness, the nagging sense of who am I, what am I, without Christ, in that constant nagging sense, without Christ, we're having to manufacture our own sense of significance, manufacture our own sense of identity, manufacture who we are, what we're about. And at the end of the day, that leads to this self Absorption. Can anybody say self-absorption? It leads to self-absorption. You can't help it. I can't help it. Without Christ, this nagging sense. So it becomes about my needs, my desires, my significance. But Christ comes and he heals you. He redeems you. He saves you. Quite literally, from self-absorption. Somebody's clapping. Wow. That's bold. (laughs) I love that about our church. Yes. We all need to be delivered from self-absorption because that's what's keeping us from living for others. Now, let's say it right now. You cannot heal your self-absorption by yourself. You cannot heal yourself and train yourself to think about others without Christ. And he comes and he heals us. He redeems us. He quite literally delivers us from self-salvation, self-absorption. And we begin to look and live for others. Has that happened to you? Follower of Jesus Christ. See, First century, a group of people experienced and encountered the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel has said that the rule and reign of God has entered the world through his kingdom. And when we believe in the good news, that is through Christ, the power of God's kingdom has entered the world to renew and restore all things. And when we place our faith in his rule and reign and his death and cross, that he lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died, when we place our faith in that work of Christ on the cross and repent of our sins, the Bible says the rule and reign of God, the kingdom of God comes into us and begins to work in and through us. And what we notice in the book of Acts is these people who encountered this gospel began to live like this. Look, look. Uh, Acts 1.14. Acts, which chronicles a story of this first century movement. When you read the account, you realize something right away. Acts 1.14. Can we all read this together, church? Ready? They all joined together constantly in prayer. Here's another. Right away. Acts 2.1. When the Day of Pentecost came. They were all together in one place. Verse 4, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues. The Spirit enabled them. Verse 44, everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. Verse 44, all the believers were together at everything. Do you notice the pattern? What's the pattern? Keep going. Acts 4, 31. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. What would our church be like if they were all? Whoo. You know what happened? Our city would be transformed. They were all, the believers were one in heart. What would our church be like if we were all one in heart? Hmm, hmm, hmm. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. Verse 33, with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grave was so powerfully. <laughs> you, I could keep going. What would our church be like if God's grace was powerfully at work within us? All oh, for Acts 5, 12, uh, the last verse, uh, last verse I'll read. All the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade as significant times and places in the book of Acts. The only way to describe what, what happened is through the word all and everyone. They changed the world for Christ because they 
Say it with me. All. Not just pastors. Not just the spiritual elites. Not just the missionaries. Everyday, ordinary, average believers of Christ embrace this call. And believe the gospel. When we planted this church 12 years ago, a group of us actually had the audacity to believe that if all the believers followed Christ and lived their lives radically, the city would be different. And in the process, God would change us. This thing is not possible until they say it with me. Who are we? Why do we exist? What's our mission about? I'm just going to break it down and do. Today, I have four points, not three points. <laughs> four points. Break down our mission statement. Some of us, this is a reminder. Some of us, it's a refresher. Some of us, this is brand new. And for some of us, frankly, it's about time. We not just hear it, but we live it. Here's the first point. We seek to be a city within a city. Why is this the core of our mission statement? Matthew 5, 14, Jesus says to his disciples, you are a city on a hill. City within a city. A Chicago within Chicago. An alternate city. And in this alternate city, people live in a way that's radically different from the city out there Listen very carefully. We live radically different from city out there in regards to everything. Why? Because people in this city have a different king. And his name is King Jesus. And this King Jesus says, there is not an inch of this city or this world that I don't declare mine. That means if you are a citizen of this city and the gospel has penetrated your heart, it changes the way you live in regards to everything. In regards to how you go about your relationships, how you go about your sexuality, how you spend your money, what your marriage looks like, how you raise your children, your cultural and racial identity. It affects everything you and I do. Why? Because under this king, we don't compartmentalize certain lives, parts of our lives and say, this area, you get to be king. But this area, I get to do what I want. There is not an inch of this world that this king doesn't declare mine. Do you know what that means? That means justice has as much to do with how you spend your money, where you live, what kind of job you have, why you choose that job, the clothes you wear, how much money you spend on your coffee. It has to do with every aspect of your life. Can I get an amen? Is that happening here? Is that happening here? Is this an alternate city? Because under this... Oh, good Lord. Let's just be honest this morning. How many of y'all know that Jesus is not king over your finances? More raise your hands. Okay. How many of y'all know that Jesus is not king over what you do with your sex life? Hello. Okay. How many of y'all know that Jesus is not king over your career path? Oh. You see what we do? And Jesus says, this alternate city, he's king and he's ruler over all things. Oh, by the way, can I just bring up something really obvious? This is a corporate command. What do I mean? You are a city within a city. Can you be a city by yourself? <laughs> Some of y'all go, yes. <laughs> I am a city all unto myself. Thank you very much. It's a problem. 
Why do I bring this up? I need to say this for like two minutes because it is popular in our culture for some people to believe that you can be a Christian by yourself. You don't need a church. God says, and you got to find a whole new religion then. Because you cannot enter into a relationship with Christ without entering into a relationship with the group, a city, an organism called the body of Christ. They go together. The moment you enter into a personal relationship with Christ, whether you like it or not, you got joy, man, to other people. And can I just say something? This community is not perfect. I'm not perfect, but neither are you. We're all imperfect on a journey together. That's what makes it so beautiful, isn't it? We're never going to be perfect this side of heaven. I'm just going to say one challenging thing. So if you're um, complaining and daydreaming about why the grass over here is so brown and nasty, instead of complaining and daydreaming about green pastures elsewhere, start watering your own mm, grass. Amen? See, it's easy, I found, because I did this too, to sit in the pew and just criticize, 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 criticize. It's way hard to get your skin in the game. We seek to be a city within a city, an alternate Chicago. Next point. Say this with me. That passionately loves Jesus. Oh, and you guys know this is probably my favorite part. Acts 17, 24, one of my favorite passages, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Verse 26, from one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. Literally, some translation says, and God determined the time and places where you should live. God is involved in the absolute details of your life. Is that good news to anybody? Some of you, that's why you're here at church today. Because you're going, God, do you care? I am telling you right now, God is involved. He has numbered your days. He has determined where you should live. Question, why are you here in Chicago? Your answer, well, I go to school here. Not according to God. Why are you here in Chicago? Well, because I work here. Not according to God. Well, I like the city life. And the culture and the blah, 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 blah. No, not according to God. You are here because God brought you here. Now, here's the question. You ready? How many of y'all who have decisions to make on whether you should stay in Chicago or move are actually praying and saying, God, where do you want me to live? What would happen if you prayed as fervently about that as your future spouse? Why are you not praying about where you should live? Why do we just assume, well, God, of course I'm going to move there. Well, I'm going to do. Why do you assume? Okay, some of you have decisions on how long you should stay in Chicago. Are you praying about that? Well, of course not. Why not? God determines at times. Well, how would we be different if we actually believe that God cares about where we live as much as who we marry, what jobs we get? God determined the time. And the places. Some of y'all need to go home today and go, Lord, I repent for deciding in advance where I'm going to live and what I'm going to do. Is he Lord? Seriously, is he Lord? Hmm? 
Uh, but that's not the main point of verse 27. So we would seek after God and not just grope around in the dark, but actually find him. This is a message translation. He doesn't play hide and seek with us. Thank you, God, for not doing that. He's not remote. He's near. We live and move in him and can't get away from him. Paul is saying, God gave you life and breath so that you would have the optimal opportunity to seek God and to find him. Paul is in Athens, a city filled with idols, as some of you know. And the picture of Athens is one, like our world today, where millions and hundreds of millions of people bow down and worship figures of stone and wood and hay, not because they're ignorant, but because they're desperately trying to get the attention of the one who created them. To seek him and find him. They're desperately trying to get the attention of the one. There is something that I know about you, even though I may not know you. And that is, is we're all worshipers all day, every day. The Bible says that we've been created by God and for God. You know what that means? That means that every one of us, there's a homing device put in there where we have to find worth. We have to give allegiance to something or to someone. The question is not, are you a worshiper, Christian or not? The question is, who or what is the object of your worship? I was talking to someone yesterday during coffee. And this person was sharing with me a story that's common for many of you. They came to the city of Chicago because this city provides opportunities and challenges and rewards for success, fame, money. But what they found out quickly was the city of Chicago attracts sometimes the most talented, the most bright, the most driven, ambitious people anywhere. And so you find yourself all of a sudden thrown into a group of people that are more talented, more gifted, more successful than you. And what happens? You start working that much harder, that much longer. And you fall prey to the worst form of sin. It's not what you think. The worst form of sin is not breaking the rules, it's breaking the rule. And the rule is we begin to find our identity and our worth in other things beside God. You don't just work, you live for work. You don't just enjoy that relationship, you live for that relationship. You live. And I'm sitting there at this coffee shop, and I'm talking, and this is what I would share with you. You came to the city of Chicago to be free. You're not free. Nobody here is free. We're all spiritually bound and enthralled to something or to someone. Do you recognize that? It may be making money. It may be her, him. It may be romance. It may be grades. It may be job or school. But there's something, someone that has got you and me worshiping it, bound to it, spiritually enthralled to it. And you're tired You're exhausted. You can't just keep going. And you know it and I know it. I am telling you right now, no amount of vacation days will give you the rest. How many of you know what I'm talking about? You go away for a week or two and you come back and you're still tired. Why? Because you will not rest until you find your rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. You will not rest until you find your rest. What do you what do you mean by that? Here's what I mean. A lifelong search for validation, identity, and worth in self-absorption will not end until you realize that Jesus comes and says, It's not about what you do or what you accomplish, but it's about what I've done and what I've accomplished for you. 
That's identity, the validation, the significance. I'm talking to you that you're looking for that's got you tired and exhausted and you medicate it and self-medicate it and you think sex is going to heal it. You think drinking, you think part, you think relationship and you walk away even emptier and Jesus says the only thing that could heal you and free you is when you finally come to the place of saying, my validation, my significance, my acceptance has been settled. It's been settled. Once and for all. Is this speaking to anybody? Why are you building your identity on something that is so unsubstantial, so shakable? It's like quicksand. You're building your life. I'm building my life on quicksand. You want to be free? Admit that you're not. Admit it. Rigorous honesty. You want to be free from addiction to that person's affirmation? Admit that you're not free. And acknowledge that Christ came not just to forgive, but Christ came to free. Freedom. Just this week, I had three conversations with people in our church who said, I'm addicted to people's approval. Am I the only one? (laughs) And I just wanted to go, yeah. (laughs) Half of us in here, Half of us in here, the reason why we're so tired is because what other people think of us matter more than what Christ thinks of us. And that journey will never end for you until you could actually admit that that's the case. Real talk this morning, Cece. Real talk. Do you know why we do what we do in here? Do you know why, do you know why we do all this in here? Can I just make it as plain as possible? Do you know why? Because all we're doing on Sunday mornings is to create space so that that person that's been searching, seeking, tired, exhausted, sick of life, I'm just done with life, maybe, just maybe, just maybe, that soul will walk in here on Sunday morning and connect with this God who created them for him. That's why there are people who show up at 6.30 to set everything up. That's why there are tens of people working behind the scenes. Just, you need to hear this. Just so that, just so that even one person could just walk in here Sunday morning and through worship and preaching, they would connect with this creator God and they would stop worshiping that dead lifeless idol but churn and worship the living God. Is that worth it? We think so. That's why we do what we do. We passionately love Jesus Christ. Secondly, we intentionally engage in authentic community. Everybody say intentionally. Everybody say intentionally. (laughs) One more time. Everybody say intentionally. Ephesians 2.19. You're no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. When Jesus died and rose again, he didn't just reconcile us to God. He died and rose again and gave us the gift of community. We're adopted into God's family. We're not just citizens of a different kingdom, but sons and daughters and brothers and sisters. And before we all start getting warm and fuzzy, I'm going to take you down a path where you might not like before we come around. Some of you all know where I'm going with this. See, the people that you automatically get related to when you're born into the family of God, they're not your friends. No, you choose your friends. You didn't choose them. Who would choose them, right? Oh, I just, come on, Kimmy. Let's be real here for a point, okay? We're all family. 
not friends initially or significant others. The deal with, though, having parents, though, is that you automatically get what? Brothers and sisters. And can we be honest? Aren't our family relationships with people that you may not particularly like and given a choice, people that you would not choose as friends or family? True? Yet in the New Testament, the Bible and Jesus has the audacity to constantly say things like brother and brother and brother and brother and sister and sister and sister and sister. Why? Because the point of Christianity, the point of Christianity is that when you enter into a relationship with this heavenly father, operative word, he's not your boss. So that, you know, as long as you perform well, You're accepted and loved. But the moment you stop performing well, you're fired. He's your heavenly father and you have an enduring, unconditional, that is, it's not about performance relationship with God. And God says if you want an enduring, unconditional relationship with your heavenly father, then you are going to enter into enduring, unconditional relationship with your brothers and your sisters. Plainly, if you want to be accepted, welcome, loved by God unconditionally, you're going to have to learn how to welcome, accept, and love your brothers and your sisters unconditionally. And that is hard. Do you know why? Because when you become a Christian, you realize that God is perfect. God's people are very not. Is that even a correct English? Are very not. It was very not. (laughs) See, here's the funny thing for me. You ready? Maybe I'm just weird. It's not, to me, it's not that irrational or unbelievable to love God. God is absolutely lovely, beautiful in splendor, majestic. It makes perfect sense to love God. It's not a miracle to love God. It's loving God's people. That's a miracle. It's loving each other. That's a miracle. Let me just, seriously, let me break it down. Break it down. The people that are sitting next to you, they're your brothers and your sisters. They're not your friends. What do I mean? You choose your friends. What do I mean? You choose friends who are like you, who agree with you, who share similar views as you, who you're comfortable with. But God says, You are sitting near, next, front, behind people who you would not particularly like, who you don't share much. There are people that are your brothers and sisters you would have nothing to do with if not for Jesus. The question is, are you just tolerating them or are you loving them? Are you just tolerate? First John, if we claim to love God but not love our brothers, we're what? We're liars. We're liars. If we claim to love God and not have love for our brothers, we're liars. And Jesus doesn't come and say, Therefore, love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength and tolerate your neighbor as yourself. He says, love God with all. You're just doing it because your husband's not here today. Um, Do you know why this is so huge for me? Oh, you guys. We live in a culture and society. Or if you disagree with someone, you demonize them, you caricature them, and you have nothing to do with them. Are we different in here? Are we any different in here? I'm going to go there. I'm going to go there. I'm going to go there. This week, our denomination has a week-long conference. And this week, I, as a denominational pastor, found out that on a particular day this week, there's a group of pastors who support gay marriage will have their own little meeting 
unofficially approved by the denomination. And at the same time, another group of pastors who disagree with or disapprove of gay marriage are having their own same meeting at the exact same day, at the exact same time. And my question is, why are they not speaking to each other? This week, I'm embarrassed to be a covenant pastor. I might get in trouble for saying this. I don't care. Can we be a church where a Republican who watches Fox News can be? <laughs> why, why you got to? Why you got to? See, this is why I'm preaching. We have a long way to go. Can I get an Amen. Can this be a church where you actually, through the Bible, say homosexuality and gay marriage? I think it's okay. But you are sitting next to somebody who says, my biblical conviction says it is not. But yet, instead of tolerating, they genuinely love each other. Can that be our church? Because that's my heart for our church, you see. Can two people who have different views politically, socially, culturally, who have nothing in common, can we be a body instead of reflecting the world out there, demonizing, characterizing, tolerating, who genuinely love each other? That's what Christ has called us to be and do. And when we do that, guess what? We will truly be different. Here's the thing. We will never begin to understand and begin to love unless we enter into deep, meaningful relationships. Do you hear me? Unless we do the hard, intentional work of reaching across the divide and entering into deep community with people who are nothing like us and share nothing in common with us racially, culturally, politically, socially, even spiritually. And do the hard work of being in community. Can any of these risks be healed? Yet, last week we had the Martin Luther King Jr. panel. I asked you guys, raise your hands if you grew up in a homogenous background. And 90% of the church raised their hands and said, I grew up in a completely homogenous background. How will we ever be the reconciled body of Christ if people who grew up in homogenous environments never enter into relationships with other people who also grew up in homogenous environments? How is the racial divide, among other things, in this country, how is that going to be bridged as long as people who say, I grew up here, this is my experience, this is my background, my story, and this person over here, this is my experience, my background, my story, and they never enter in and go, tell me your story, tell me your experience, tell me your background, where are you from? That is what we do in family. We're not a club. We're not a club. Church should not be clubs where people get together because there are one or two things in common. We are the new community. A city. A family. <sighs> My own personal experience it's only when I'm entering into deep relationships with people who are nothing like me that my biases, my assumptions, and my misunderstanding can be lodged, dislodged. Do you hear me? Please don't fool yourself into thinking because you're, you know, sitting in a multi-ethnic congregation that you're being reconciled. You and I have biases, assumptions, racist attitudes about each other that will never get dislodged and changed until you actually sit down with the physical human being and say, tell me your story. I got an email this week from a, a Caucasian brother who grew up actually in the South and was a minority in primarily black communities. And he experienced something that just hard, 
And he had a hard time here last Sunday and said, I'm just having a hard time with this conversation. And I so appreciated him and that email because you know why? I hadn't thought that there are people in our church, white folks, white folks who may have grown up in primarily black neighborhoods. And for them, the conversation is very different from a typical white affluent person. And just an email from that brother made me pause back and go, our church is incredibly diverse in every possible way. And until we begin to enter into deep, meaningful relationships, how will we ever come to having our attitudes, our judgments, and assumptions dislodged? Practically, real quick, you guys. This is such a common sense, like a no-brainer. I felt silly just kind of talking about it, but practically, we have to enter into small group environments. You can't, we can't do this on a Sunday morning. We can't. We can't. God, <laughs> if you walk up from Sunday mornings going, so are all Koreans like Peter? You are, you've got nothing coming. You've gotten you've major shocker coming. Our goal at New Community, our goal at New Community is, listen please, that every single person who attends regularly, every single person who calls us their home, every single person would enter into small group environments. And let me be very clear, I'm not talking about just join a small group. My staff and I are working really hard to provide as many small group environments where people can get together and begin to form deep, meaningful relationships. And that's hard. It's hard. When people ask, how do you do that? I go, I don't know. I don't know. All I know is it's not going to happen until we enter into some meaningful, intentional small group environments. And we and our church are working really, really hard to provide places in which you could study the word together, share life stories, pray for each other. And we're trying to provide as many environments as possible. And we don't care if it happens Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, evening, morning, church, bars, restaurants. We don't care where it happens, when it happens. We just want to continue to provide small group environments. Because otherwise, we have no chance. We have no chance. So my challenge to you before we finish here is, is to say, how committed are you if you're not with a group of people? By the way, real quick, I'm going to talk more about this next week. We're launching a new ministry called Talking Circles. Some of you are like, what's that? I finally came up with the name, Talking Circles. Talking Circles is, a, is, a, is, a, is something that was invited. I want to make sure I get this right. Talking Circles. It was introduced by Dr. Randy Woodley, who is a Kituwa Cherokee Indian. And Talking Circle is essentially an opportunity for a group of people to get together, anywhere from 3 to 20, 30, to share their life story, life experience without being interrupted, to gain awareness and shared deeper understanding. And I've been saying to you guys, the only way for some of us who are like, I don't have any friends of color, I don't have any friends of other socioeconomic class, how do I even go about doing this? The reality is you can't just randomly walk around and go, Buh, will you be my friend? Uh, will you be my friend? Remember we said that last week, don't do that, right? <laughs> you can do that with me, but don't do it with other people. <laughs> but here at our house and a couple other homes, we would, you just want to provide a space, relational environment, space for people to come. We're going to meet, meal together. And there are three, four principles how this is done. We will go, but a group of people are going to help me organize this. So that group of people who are saying, how do I enter into this thing? How do I enter into this thing deeper? That they can come. In a context that's safe, authentic, and real share their stories, and begin the journey of gaining deep understanding. This is just one example of what I'm talking about when I say small group environments. Intentionally, say it with me. Intentionally, one more time. Intentionally, is that happening to you? Lastly, radically advance the cause of Jesus. I think it was Dr. King who said that everyone can be great because anybody can serve. 
Here's the amazing thing about God, you guys. You ready? When Jesus wrapped a towel around his waist, that wasn't extraordinary. We go, whoa. No, it was right in line with who he was. At the heart of God, he's a servant. And Jesus was doing nothing more than reflecting the servant heart of God. And we may never be more like God or reflect his image as fully as when we are serving others out of a selfless heart. You know what I've realized? And if this resonates with you, will you just say amen, help your pastor finish strong today? Don't you most feel alive when you're living for something other than just yourself? If you've never experienced that, you're missing out, man. You know what is the worst thing? The worst thing in the world is someone who says, I just want to be happy. I just want to be happy. Because happiness, for the sake of happiness, is a dead end. You don't just become happy because I just want to work hard. Happiness is a result of giving your life to a cause larger than yourself. Happiness is a byproduct of somebody who says, when I live just for my needs, my own desires, my life begins to feel really small. When I live just for me and my needs and my desires, my life begins to feel really small, really insignificant, because I'm not making a difference to anybody, anywhere. How about you? The only time my heart comes alive is when out of a pure selfless motivation, I begin to live my life for a cause larger than just me. Larger than just me. Our greatest fear in life, our greatest fear in life should not be that we would fail at something, but that we would give our entire life for something that at the end of the day will not matter. How many more conversations do I need to have with somebody who comes to the end of their life and says, I gave my life for that? For what? And what does scripture say? It's so powerful. Ephesians 2.10. He creates each of us by Christ Jesus to join him in the work he does. The good work he has gotten ready for us to do. Work we had better be doing. There's an encouragement and a challenge here. Here's the encouragement. You ready? It's... It's that when you get up tomorrow morning on a Monday, God doesn't have some generic, there's a mission for you. And you're going, what's that? God goes, there's a specific mission with your name on it. Have you thought about that? Have you thought about the fact that when you and I get up in the morning, God says, I have specific persons that I've set apart for you to talk to. I have specific things that I have set apart for you to do. I have specific mission for you. Some of you are like, really? Don't take my word for it. He has a specific mission. That means, I'm just going to be as, as, as clear as possible. There are some hands out there that only you can hold. There are some needs out there that only you can meet. God has a mission for you that only you can fulfill. Think of how utterly different this is to the reigning sort of secularistic worldview in our society that says our biological lives are just an accident. It doesn't matter. God says specific mission with your name on it. If you don't hear anything, you hear this. I'm glad you're here today. Our church I want to be the kind of pastor that measures success, not by how many people here on Sunday morning, although I love the fact that people come and invite their friends. I want to be the kind of pastor that pastors church that says we don't measure success by people here, how many are in small groups, how big our budget is. I want to measure success by the number of you that are living in mission for Jesus Monday through Saturday. And I got to tell you, that's not easy for me. 
I'm a human being just like you, and I find my identity and my self-worth and how many people are here and in small groups, what's our budget, and I have to discipline myself to get on my knees and go, God, it's not about me. It's about how many of your people are in mission every day of their lives. Practically, what does this mean? I'm almost done. Every single one of us has several callings into this mission to serve. I have a calling as a husband to serve my wife. Calling as a father to serve my children. Calling as a son to serve my still living parents. Calling as a pastor that you're just most familiar with to serve you, the church family. A calling as a citizen. Listen carefully. None of these are more important than others. They're all important. So, practically, I leave you with these. One, you want to advance the cause of Jesus? First one, serve your family well. Serve your family well. First Timothy 3.5. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? My friend Eugene Cho, some of you guys know, who does some awesome, awesome work in the area of global poverty. His favorite saying is, you want to change the world? Start with your family. Start with your family. If you're a husband, be a great husband for crying out loud. If you're a father or a parent, be a phenomenal Parents and disciple your children like crazy. If you're a son or a daughter, especially of unbelieving parents, you might be the only witness to Jesus that they will ever see. You want to change the world? Start with your family. Start with your marriage. Start with your children. Can I get an amen? And if you think, well, that's not important, then you don't know your Bibles and you don't know the heart of God. Serve your family. How many more children will have to be sacrificed on the altar of ministry or careers? How many more marriages will have to be sacrificed on the altar of some cause or some ministry that does not honor God? Does not honor God. Serve your family well. That is one way you will advance the cause of Jesus. Secondly, serve your employer or employees well. You're sitting there going, ah, I see where he's going with this. But what about the cause in the world? I'll get to that, but you know. Colossians 3.23, oh my gosh, this ought to convict the heck out of us. Whatever you do, work at it with all your hearts as working for the Lord, not for men. Verse 24, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. And the context, of course, is Paul talking about employers and employees. If you are a Christian, you ought to be the best worker in your company. If you are a Christian, you ought to be the best employer or employer in the country. By your model, by your example, by your speech, people ought to be blown away because you're sending such a clear, distinctive difference. How many of us actually go to work on Monday and think that this is how I honor God and advance the cause of Jesus? Are you the best worker in your company because by that you're glorifying God? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Students. Yeah, students. Yeah. I want to change the world for Jesus. Be faithful with your academic stewardship. Don't be like your pastor who blew off his sophomore and junior year in college academically because, you know, I was doing work for the Lord. It's fine to do work for the Lord, but if you are not a good student, you're not honoring God. Jesus said, uh, how could I entrust you with much? If you can't be faithful with little, uh, how can I uh, entrust you with significant things of the kingdom if you can't be entrusted with insignificant things? Again, Jesus is king and Lord over 
Third, serve your neighbors well. What do I mean? We are called, the Bible says, to be neighbors, the best neighbors that the city of Chicago has seen. The ultimate purpose of redemption is new heaven and a new earth. That means we sacrificially serve the good of the whole city, the whole neighborhoods. Whether they believe or not, whether they agree or not, whether they're Muslim, Buddhist, atheist, agnostic, whether they're hostile towards us or not, we love them and serve them in word and deed. We love and serve our neighbors. Um, I ripped this off from somebody's Facebook post. I'm going to say it again. You can't save the whole world, so don't. What's the one thing that God might be calling you to this year to be more loving and more just? What's the one thing that God is calling you to where you choose obedience over convenience or comfort? What is the one thing that God will cause, call you to? To give of your life radically. Challenge? Can we not play the calling comparison game? Can we not do the whole, well, everybody should? Why? If you believe what Scripture says, do we not honor that teacher who is working her butt off to teach those kids as well as she could to be a witness as much as that mom who's got poop in her fingers loving on her four kids as much as that investment banker who is making lots and lots of money. And you ought to make lots and lots of money if you're an investment banker and radically giving that as much as those of us who work with the poor are not all those callings what God has called us to, to honor him, advance his kingdom. Can I get an amen? So let's stop with the whole, every, everybody, everybody, what? We all have been called by God. But you know what, Peter, if, unless I tell them that they will not, are you actually telling me that unless you talk to them about it, that they will not hear God's voice? One of my favorite, most convicting passages is in John 21, <laughs> where Jesus is walking with Peter. And uh, Jesus just casually goes, oh, yeah, by the way, Peter, you're going to die pretty tragically. And Peter goes, what? (laughs) Not good news? Yeah, that's what I'm calling you to do. Then Peter does this. He goes, but what about him? Referring to John. And Jesus has the audacity to say what? If I want him to remain alive until I return. What's that to you? You must follow me. My translation, Peter, mind your own business. (laughs) And do what I call you to do. Can I get an amen? Mind your own business. Serve your church well. Lastly, serve your church well. You have been given unique gifts that our church needs in order for us to build the body of Christ so that we can go out into the world and make a difference. Let me just, let me just. Do you know why we do what we do? Everything, everything. I'm talking about every single waking moment, waking second. Everything we do in our church, everything we do at our church has one purpose and one purpose only. Do you know what that is? It's to equip you and prepare you for all these callings that I just talked about. That's it. Everything that we do in this church is to prepare and equip you for all of these callings that we just talked about. Is that important? That means we need All of you. A mission as expansive as this doesn't have any room for spectators. And the Bible says, I've given Peter, every single breathing person in your church, a spiritual gift to make an impact in the body called new community to train and equip people. So my challenge is, will you move from just attending To committing. Will you move from just watching to participating? Will you move 
move from just receiving to contributing? Will you move from just consuming to investing? And will you move from a life of indifference to make a concrete difference in our church and the city? And lastly, see, see, we're done here. Leaders, keep your eyes on Jesus. Do not, please do not, please do not, for the sake of your calling. Lose your focus on the caller. Please, I implore you as your pastor, as your brother, do not, do not, for the sake of your calling, lose focus and sight of your caller, Jesus. I beg you. I have seen too many people in my 20-some years of ministry, pastors, missionaries, I've seen too many people become toxic and destroy themselves because they lost sight of the fact that your calling is only as good as your caller and your relationship to him. Please, I implore you, I implore, especially for those of us who fear insignificance the most and so therefore are oftentimes the most driven, I implore you, the cause and the mission that God has for you, please do not do it out of fear of insignificance, but out of assurance of his love. I implore you, child of God, I implore you, child of God, keep him central. Keep your eyes focused on Jesus and do not ever lose sight of him and why you and I do what we do. Please, please, please do not give your life out of some fear of insignificance but out of assurance of his love for you. I implore you. Church. And if you're sitting here this morning and you don't have much of a prayer life because you're so busy You don't have a rich life of being in the word, listening and communing with him because I have so much to do. I implore you. I implore you to look at your Savior and my Savior who got up every single day and until he heard the voice of his Father saying to him, I love you. You're my beloved, in whom I am well pleased. Until you heard that voice, he went away. Until he heard that voice, he went away because he knew there's just too many important things that God had called. See, see, may we never be people who will forget that our calling is not as important as our treasure. It's not. So Jesus, so Jesus, I... I need 
to hear your voice. I, I need to hear your voice. I need the assurance of your love. I need the assurance of your approval, your affirmation, your significance. I need you, Jesus. I, I need you. I need you. I need you. Will you spend a moment, you guys, just, just as Cece just plays the keys. Not gonna respond in worship for a bit. Just, just in your seat, in your pew. Reflect on the mission, the specific mission that God has for you. But more importantly, reflect on your Savior, your Lord. Have you lost sight of Him? Have you lost focus? on him have you neglected him have you gone astray he is near so very near waiting for you and I to seek him and to reach out